Well, for our reading in God's Word, if we could turn to Exodus chapter 3. Book of Exodus in chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt 
to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. And I'd like us to uh, look at the passage we had read earlier, where we see Moses' first encounter with God. Moses, the lawgiver, Moses, the leader of the people of Israel, the first time he encounters God. Now, he was about... 80 years old at this time, but he was a young 80, let's put it like this. Um, he, he lived on to 120 without the, his vigour uh, diminished. So for those of you who, who know him, I, I like to think of him at this point as sort of like a 60-year-old Palmer Robertson, if that makes sense. Um, and so very uh, vigorous uh, in terms of uh, the way he is. And... Um, we're told from Exodus 7 verse 7 that he's 80 when he stands before Pharaoh. So he's around, around that sort of age at this point. And um, we're told that he's been shepherding. And he'd probably been shepherding for about 40 years. Again, approximation, uh, because we don't know that he got the shepherding job straight away after uh, meeting uh, Jethro and his family and so on. But think about that. 40 years of shepherding. Now, I don't know whether shepherds then got a day off or not, but let's say they did have a day off a week. Uh, after 40 years, that would be about 12,000 days of shepherding. And shepherding might have its exciting moments. You hope for not too many of those, uh, when there might be an animal attack or something like that. But a lot of it is just drudgery. Days that are too hot, days that are too cold. Feeling hungry, feeling thirsty, walking a lot. It's like hiking all the time, the weariness of looking after these sheep. And we are told there in verse 1 that he was keeping the flock and literally it says in the um, second clause that he led the flock. Like the shepherd in John's Gospel, he went ahead of the flock. Now, um, I'm told there's this difference. I actually have seen it in the Middle East. Uh, The Middle Eastern shepherd leading the flock, whereas over in the west of Europe, it seems the shepherds generally go behind the flock and drive them. And this relies on the principle that the sheep are going to hear the voice of the shepherd and somehow follow. But, of course, sheep everywhere, whether they're uh, Western European or Middle Eastern, are have intellectual challenges, and uh, they're not always very good at following, as the Bible uh, tells us. So I'm sure there were times when they weren't following Moses, 
And this would be excellent preparation for him for leading people uh, who wouldn't always be following him. So that's what's been going on uh, with Moses. Uh, He doesn't know he's getting prepared for anything. He's just been putting in day after day after day with not much happening out in the desert. And this is an amazing point at which God uh, comes uh, to him. And we find that he is there, verse uh, 1, keeping the flock of his uh, father-in-law Jethro. And verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, he knew the way the desert was, and this was not normal. He's actually, at this point, at the back of the desert. Now, how you get to the back of the desert? Well, the desert has a front and a back. The front is nearer where things are going on, civilization. And he's now in the back of beyond. There should be absolutely nothing happening here. But in fact, we're told that he has come to the mountain of God. Now, using that word, it's, that phrase, it's telling us something's going to happen at this mountain, but it wasn't called the mountain of God as far as Moses was concerned. It was just the mountain. But this is a particular place where God has chosen that he is going to encounter his people. He's going to give the Ten Commandments. God has chosen this absolutely out-of-the-way place, and this person who thinks that nothing particularly is going on in life, in order to reveal himself. And he reveals himself as a fire. Now, in the Bible, God reveals himself in different ways and shows his grace in different ways. He he comes as a dove or shows his grace in a rainbow or in a um, still small voice or as the sound of many waters. Why here as a fire? What does a fire make you think of? Well, for humans and I think for many animals, a fire speaks of danger, a consuming fire. Um, We should think of God and we should rightly fear him. But a fire also can purify. You can think of how the great fire of London um, delivered it from the plague. Or a fire can consume waste, it can cleanse metals, it can burn chaff. And so here we have God's choosing a particular way to show himself to Moses, where we see a reason for fear, and we see something about purity. And that makes sense because Moses turns aside to see this amazing thing and is told, Moses, Moses, don't come any closer and take the shoes off your feet because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now, as we read the Bible, we get used to the word holy. But if you think of it from the beginning, this is only the second time in the entire Bible that you've come across that word. Now, the words sanctify and holy are really just the same word. Sanctify comes from Latin and and holy from Anglo-Saxon. But the first time we've come across holiness in the Bible is Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, where God set aside one day in seven and made it holy. Okay, the Sabbath. And then there's absolutely no mention of holiness all the way through Genesis. So when you're talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the rest, no mention of holiness. And now we have this mention of holiness. Something about God that is going to be introduced 
again with Moses and it's going to become a really, really important thing. Holiness is going to come up again and again as a matter in Moses' life. The importance of the tabernacle that's um, uh, talked about and then constructed later on in the book of Exodus. You're going to see how, how, how there were like layers. There's the holy of holies. And then the holy place outside that. And then there is the camp. And the, the Levites, who are the um, a, a special tribe, they're closer in uh, uh, the, the, than others. And what you see is then there's outside the camp where unclean things go. And layers and layers where you see that holy, holiness, in some ways, speaks to us of God's remoteness, his separateness, his difference from us. What does holy mean? It means, one of, among other things, different, separate, set apart. And one of the things we're going to see with Moses is how a fundamental principle of God is how different he is from us. How unclean we are. How, how can we possibly approach God? Now this is vital when we think about the way God has set out the Bible in order to teach us things. And it's really important, the order in which things happened. Jesus tells that as a fundamental principle of reading the Bible, read it in order. Paul again, likewise. First you get Abraham. God making promises unconditionally to Abraham who is friend of God. After that, we're then taught something structural we need to understand. That is God's holiness and how separate he is from God, from us. How how distant in many ways. Now, how can you have the closeness and yet that set-apartness? Well, of course, the only way we're going to have that is as we come through the Bible, we realise it's resolved in Jesus Christ who came down to earth from God to cleanse us from our sins and make us holy and righteous so we can come to him. But first, the Bible sets us up with a promise of the the friendship and the intimacy. Then it sets up this distance, which is absolutely fundamental for us to realise that we can never underestimate the difference between us and God. Right? But then we see, as we read through Scripture, the wonderful news of Christ drawing us near. So all of that is going on in this passage. And so Moses is called by God, and he says, here I am. God says, do not come near. And he says, I am the God of your father, Amram, and I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hides his face. He realises that... God is awesome and fearsome, whereas he had just been thinking it would be an ordinary day. Then we read these remarkable words in verses 7 through to 9. Firstly, in verse 7, we're told that God has seen, seen the affliction of his people. And in verse 9, you're told it from another angle. You're told he's seen the oppression by the Egyptians. So he's got a comprehensive view. He sees it both from the perspective of the victim, he's seen the affliction of his people, and he's seen it from the point of view of the sin that the oppressors are doing. But what is really mind-blowing is this. What you have 
at the end of verse 7, I know their sufferings. Oh, you think, ah, of course, God knows everything. So what this means is God knows about their sufferings. He knows that they're suffering, right? But he actually says more than that. You see, when we know suffering, we can know suffering because we're experiencing it ourselves, or we can know about suffering, right? So they're, they're just those two options. You either experience it, or you hear about it as an outside observer. Now, Christ, of course, is going to suffer more than anyone's ever suffered. And he went voluntarily towards that, and that's, that's amazing. And, and it's mysterious, because God takes on flesh, and we don't understand that, we can't grasp that. And, and somehow, the God-man, Christ Jesus, suffers. But then we also know that God himself doesn't suffer. The cross is a mystery, but that apart. So how can it say what it says in verse 7? I know their sufferings. What's the answer? God's ways are not our ways. We don't need to know how he knows that, but we know it's real. So when you're suffering, God knows what you're suffering. Not just in a sort of about way. God knows it. And I think that's something incredibly comforting. And and God means it to be comforting. God who is holy fire, who can consume, but doesn't consume this bush. But that's what fire does. Scary, fearsome, cares about the suffering of his people. Now, his people have been suffering for some time. Maybe quite a long time. Moses has been away from Egypt for 40 years, and they were suffering well before that. In fact, they were suffering... 80 years ago, because they were trying to kill the the boys at the time when his mother put him into a basket. So it goes back more than that. God's people have been suffering for a very long time. But none of that suffering has gone unnoticed. The chronology that you get in the book of Exodus is really remarkable. If we just go back to chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, it will tell you about a man from the house of Levi, took his wife, a Levite woman, and, and, and they have Moses, okay? And, and But the thing about that is that that is the answer to the cries of the Israelites that you get at the end of chapter 2. Now, just think about the order of this. Beginning of chapter 2 is God preparing Moses. The end of chapter 2 is the Israelites groaning and God hearing. So God answered the prayer before it was prayed. That's the sort of thing God does. It's an amazing thing. He raises up the prayer to pray the prayer that she's already on the way to answering. What a remarkable encouragement that, I hope, is for us to pray. And then he says that he's heard their uh, cry and he's going to lead them to the land of these uh, six nations which uh, need to be removed. And he says, and this is the catch, verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, Moses is a shepherd. 
got lots of hours as a shepherd out in Midian. All you need to do is go and talk to the most powerful man on earth and lead out the people from Egypt. That's what it's about. That's what this appearance is about. Okay, and what we're going to see now, and I want us to look in in at this, and we'll go a bit into chapter 4, is five different excuses that Moses is going to try to get out of this. Okay, so the very first thing, and this is a big commission, a big task, uh, is, that's it, verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, you can see where he's coming from. He's just a shepherd. How can you go and do it? Well, but you are about the only Israelite who actually got trained in the royal court. And so you might know some Egyptian, you know some Hebrew, and you also had uh, foreign experience over in Midian. And you're getting trained as a shepherd to do exactly the sort of thing that you're going to be needing to do later, namely pull along recalcitrant humans behind you. So in one sense, who are you? You're exactly the right person for the job. But there's another perspective. It's not about who you are. God says, this is the answer, I will be with you. It's not about who we are, what our skills are. One person plus God is the majority. One person plus God can do anything. It's not a who, it's a completely wrong focus. Who am I? You get really depressed with a who am I? Who are you? That's much more relevant, isn't it? So he turns inward, as we do so often. We focus in on ourselves and think, oh, how am I doing? How's God doing? Rather well. Are his plans succeeding? Yes. Is he still king of the universe? Yes. Do we have lots and lots of history where we've seen him do things? How's God doing with the UK? Is he doing okay? I mean, how, are, how am I doing? That's, a, that's not going to be a really cheerful thought, is it? But that's Moses in verse 11. How, who am I that I should do it? But this is what God says, verse 12. I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Aha! This is like a post-dated check, right? You know, check the written for some time in the future. Because the sign that he will be with them is going to be at the end, right? They're going to come back to this mountain and they're going to worship God. So this is an interesting principle you get in the Bible, that God gives the evidence later than we want. <laughs> Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34. Now, this meal tastes really good. Prove it. How do you prove it? We well, have to taste it first. Right? Yeah, that's what you have to do. And then the evidence for the goodness of the meal comes later. And that's the way God has made a lot of things in life. Now, it's not that God is asking him to go out with no evidence. After all, there is a bush that is burning and not burning up. So that's plenty of evidence. That's enough. Okay, if a bush should burn, not burn up. That's not exactly the same thing as you're going to be able to go to Pharaoh and the people are going to come out. But it, it should be enough. And so what God does with evidence is he gives us 
an experience of him that isn't the same as the next thing that he's going to challenge us to do. But it's enough. You see, we've all experienced enough of God's faithfulness to know his faithfulness for whatever the next thing is, even though the next thing may be very, very different from the last thing. Do you see? And this is what he gets. Moses has a second go at an excuse, and this is in verse 13. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say? So, in other words, okay, I've got to say, God of your fathers, but I don't know your name. Well, God has an answer to this, and this is an amazing answer. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, what an amazing name. Because what this shows is that God is one who doesn't, who who exists not depending on anyone else. Not in his own. He exists in himself. He is the ground of being. The one who is. I am who I am. What a remarkable name. And it also means I was who I was. I will be who I will be. The one who was and is and is to come, as the New Testament puts it. That's who he is. Self-existent. What an amazing name. And, and, and so he can go to the people of Israel and say that the one who is the very ground of all being is the one who sent him. This is unlike, there are lots of gods in Egypt. They've got names, Amun, Ra, Aten. They each sort of do a piece of something. They might be in charge of sunrise or might be in charge of the river or crocodiles or whatever it is like that. But this is the one who is the ground of all being. And then God also said, verse 15, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And I puzzle about the end of verse 15. Well, what is your name forever? Is it I am who I am? Or is it, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? This is my name. The answer is, yes. Right? What is God's name? The one who exists entirely independently, not dependent on anyone else. I am who I am. And the God of the person who doubted me and therefore took his concubine and had a child, the God of... um, Isaac, who's a pretty passive sort of guy and got tricked by his son. Oh, that uh, that was Jacob, who, the trickster. I am the God of the trickster. You see, God reveals himself both as the one who is the ground of all being, the one who exists on his own, and the God of particular sinful people that he has shown grace to. Both. That's who he is. Isn't that a remarkable thing? There we have what's called transcendence. I am who I am. An imminence right up close. That's who our God is. The God who is holy. So separate. The God who reveals himself. You see, it's all here. That's who our God is. Go, he says... Verse 16, gather the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me saying, 
I've observed what you've been do- uh, um, done to you in Egypt, and I promise I will bring you out, up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. So God guarantees complete success initially with the Israelite leaders. Okay? The Israelite leaders are going to listen to Moses at first. They're actually going to be spitting at him soon after that. But they are going to go to him. And his very first meeting with Pharaoh is not going to be Moses all alone. It's Moses, it's going to be Aaron, it's going to be all the Israelite leaders. And that is going to be the initial meeting. After that, Moses is not going to have the, um, the luxury of those people. But that's, that's God's grace as he does this. They will listen to your voice. You will go into the king of Egypt. Uh, this is verse uh, 18. And say, the Lord... The God of the Hebrews, so not I am who I am, the God of the Hebrews, starting slowly, starting softly, not claiming to be king of the universe. Pharaoh can cope with lots of gods, set up temples for this God, that God, so on. Okay, this is the Hebrews God, right? Okay. The God of the Hebrews has said, let's go for a three-day journey into the wilderness, verse 18, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. That's it. It's not asking to come out permanently. You're going to go into Pharaoh with a really low ask. Okay? Pharaohs are often celebrating different gods. Egypt has a calendar in the year that is just full of festivals. Often festivals out in deserts. Okay? So, that should happen. He should be able to do that. Now, Pharaoh's not going to allow that. Uh, but that's what the ask is. It comes in with a very easy ask. And then God says this, verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So Moses is called to go and and do something which is not going to be successful initially. He's got to go to the most powerful man on earth and ask him to release the people, even though God says he's not going to do it until he's compelled. But then God says this, I will stretch out my hand and I'll show my signs and wonders and I will do amazing things, and he will. And at that point, you will plunder the Egyptians, you'll be given favour in their sight. What an amazing plan. What if God's calling us to do similar things? Go and do something which is not going to succeed at first. He'll be with us, but actually it's his plan that it's not going to succeed. And we think, well, surely, you know, things ought to go right if, if God's with them. But what if this is going right on God's timescale, but not on Moses' timescale? Well, Moses has three more excuses that we must deal with briefly. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said, what's that in your hand? He said, it's a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So the question is, what evidence is there for the Israelite leaders? What's in your hand? Uh, That's a stick. I've had that stick for quite a while, actually, as I've been going around the desert. And it's a perfectly ordinary stick, thank you. That is not going to help convince the leaders of Israel. 
Oh, but it's not a stick, because if God commands, that stick becomes a serpent. This is a God, I am who I am, who is in charge of all life. And so when he says that a stick should become a serpent, it can become a serpent. He can make the dead alive. He can make stones living. He can make children of Abraham out of stones. I mean, how do you do that? God can do it. So it becomes a snake. And he runs away. Then God says this. Grab it by the tail. Now, just a word to the wise. If you're dealing with snakes, do not grab them by the tail. Grab them just behind the head. Because, you know, snakes are like, by definition, bendy things. You grab them by the tail, there's what's going to come around to you is their mouth and the fangs, okay? Just don't do this. But Moses does this, and it becomes a stick again. Because God can make what's living, what dead living, and what's living dead. And then he gives another sign. It's about actually put your hand in, 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 in your breast, it comes out leprous. Put it back in, not leprous anymore. That's two lots of sign. And then a third sign is pouring out water on the ground but comes blood. This is the biggest, biggest, let's say, um, allotment, allowance of signs anyone gets in the Bible. In one go, God is graciously giving that to Moses. Ah, but he's got another excuse. Chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your Pharaoh, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Who's talking? Moses. Moses isn't eloquent. Well, if Moses isn't eloquent, I don't know about us. But this is Moses, the lawgiver. He goes down proverbially in history as the great eloquent person. He gives the longest speech in probably the ancient world, the book of Deuteronomy. Moses not eloquent. Dude, sorry, you don't say that in the Presbyterian church. Too, too many American churches, I'm, I'm in. in. Um, this is someone who's had education in Pharaoh's court. Not eloquent. What's God's answer? Verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it I, not I the Lord? You can't say I'm not eloquent, but me, we might want to say that. God's calling us to do something, to speak to some people. We say, well, I'm not very good at knowing what to say. I'm not very good at knowing what I should say to my neighbours. I'm not very good at knowing what I should say to my colleagues at work. Who made man's mouth? Don't use that as an excuse. Now, therefore, go, verse 12, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you speak. And then, finally, we get the fifth excuse, which isn't even an excuse. Verse 13, chapter 4, verse 14. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. God has been preparing Moses for a long time, and he's not got a rational reason not to go. He just says, Please send someone else. And then we read, chapter 4, verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you both what to do. He will speak to you Uh, for you to the people, and he will be with your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Take in your staff, uh, your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. 
God is angry with Moses for not doing what he has asked him to do. At the same time as God is angry with Moses, God has already arranged for Aaron to be on the way. So just as he's already arranged Moses to be raised up in our, at the beginning of chapter 2, in answer to the prayers at the end of chapter 2, he's already arranged for Aaron to have set off into random desert, right? Somehow going to find his brother before Moses comes out with this thing like, can't you find someone else? Of course God can find someone else, but he happens to have chosen Moses, and he's going to be with his mouth and with Aaron's mouth, and there's going to be an arrangement that God is going to make sure it can all happen. What an amazing Lord we have. You see how much there is in this encounter, and I hope we can, uh, you're able to meditate on it uh, as uh, uh, time uh, goes on. What's God calling us to do? Well, probably not lead a nation out of Egypt. But he's calling us to do things that may be uncomfortable for us. I find it hard to witness, and I live in a situation where, um, in my work context, I don't come across uh, a lot of non-Christians. Uh, I do, in, or at least the ones I come across uh, in the university context tend to be people who know the Bible really well, which is like a slightly unusual uh, set of non-Christians uh, nowadays. And I think, mean, what, what can I say? Who made man's mouth? God is commissioning us to go out and tell people the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's making arrangements beforehand for the prayers that we might ask, uh, make in the future. And he is the God who is above all, the I am who I am, the ground of being. He is the God of Jacob, the trickster. That is the God who has come in the person of Jesus Christ to save us, and that is the message of the gospel that we have to go out with. You see how it all here is a wonderful challenge to us about how we live our lives today. We have the same God as Moses, But we have all of the signs that have happened to Moses, we can read about in scripture. And we have greater clarity than Moses because we have the gospel. We have Jesus Christ who's come into the world and we can look back at that. We are better equipped than Moses to do whatever we have been called to do. And God will be with us. So let's give thanks to him for the way that holy God, the living God, the God of his people, is our God. Let's just pray. We thank you for what we can read uh, in this word. We thank you for your perfect word to us. And we pray, Lord, that you will be with us, that you would open those doors for us as we seek to tell others about you. And for whatever you're challenging us to do, we pray for those who are suffering and we pray that they will know that you are with them and that you have looked on their suffering. And we thank you especially for the suffering of Christ on our behalf, paying the penalty for our sins. We bless you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.